All right, James chapter 2. This is called A Living Faith. Ooh. So did you know that the book of James is in the New Testament? Did you know that the book of James is wisdom writing, which is not super typical of the New Testament. However, in the Old Testament, we do have wisdom literature, and that's like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Solomon. So we've got a handful of them in there. And they're all kind of poetic and kind of wise at the same time. But James is the wisdom of the New Testament. So although it is like a letter, as with some of Paul's writing and John and Peter, uh, the aim of this book is understanding things in a wise way. Make sense? Well, brings us to the question, what the heck is wisdom anyway? Like, what does it mean for us to have wisdom? What is wisdom as opposed to foolishness? And what does it mean if we are to obtain wisdom, how do we live that way in a wise way? And what difference does that make in a life that is lived wisely versus lived foolishly? Well, I'm going to say this first off. That if you're living wisely, or if you're using wisdom, then you are using something according to its design. Right? You are using it in the way that it is made to be used. So if you are using wisdom in this life, you are doing life the way it is meant to be done. According to its creator. Right? So, say for instance, you want to use a brand spanking new iPhone wisely, right? And you're like, whoa, brand spanking new iPhone. You get it out of the, like, beautifully crafted little cardboard box. You're like, who puts that much attention and detail into a cardboard box? Apple, that's who, right? And you just, you pull off this, you unfurl the the opening, and you pull off the seal, and there's, like, delicious plasticness, like, covering it to just keep it safe and warm, but although it's, like, it's, like, metal and aluminum and glass, and it's cold to the touch, so warm, and you just put it on your face, and you're, like, oh, iPhone, where have you been all my life, right? And iPhone is really great if you use it according to its design, right? Like, you could use it as a phone. <laughs> Go figure. You could, use, you could use it as a camera. I love doing that. You could use it uh, at, for email, for internet. You can use it for social media. You can use it for a compass. You can use it for all kinds of stuff. You can use it for music, right? All these things that an iPhone does really well. In fact, I think that there's maybe a lot of wisdom in the design, and also the simplicity of an iPhone. But that's a whole nother sermon. <laughs> anyway. You like in love with Apple. Well, maybe. So check this out. You got an iPhone, and to use an iPhone wisely, you use it according to its design, or the way that the creator intended it to be used. Right? So you use it for all those purposes, camera, music, internet, all this stuff. You use it to stay connected to the world. You use it to send text messages. And if you do that with an iPhone, you're using it with wisdom. However, if you try to use an iPhone for a purpose other than the one it was designed or the multiple ones it was designed for, you're going to be using it foolishly, and then you're going to be frustrated at the iPhone, but this is undue frustration, as in you should not be frustrated when you try to use something not according to its design. So, for instance, if you buy an iPhone and you are under the impression that simply buying an iPhone, just simply purchasing, not doing anything with it, will make you, it will make you go from running a nine-minute mile to running a seven-minute mile, simply by buying it, and then you go out to run a mile and you still run a nine-minute mile, you can't get mad at the iPhone 
because iPhones, just by buying them, do not make you run faster by two minutes in the mile. Does that make sense? Or, like, like I understand that, you know, there's, like, apps, and you can, like, train yourself, and you can apply hard work. But if you think simply by buying an iPhone, you're going to shave two miles off your mile time, you're going to add 400 points to your SAT score, you're going to all of a sudden be uh, 10 IQ points more intelligent. Any of these things simply by buying an iPhone, if you get frustrated at the iPhone for not doing those things, your frustration is a miss. You're getting mad in a foolish way because you're using an iPhone as something it was not designed to do. So we've got to ask ourselves if we're to live with wisdom. It's according to what we were designed to do or created to do. We've got to look all the way back to Genesis saying, like, what are we here for? What has God designed us for? What has he created us for? And if we are to live with wisdom, we're living according to the creator's purpose. Right? So Genesis 1, we see from high up, zoomed out view, the creations of heavens and earth and stars and suns and all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, the earth is formed and things are filled on the earth and whatnot. And then Genesis 2, we get a little more zoomed in view, like here's what's going on. Specifically with the creation of man as the pinnacle of creation, right? And then not only that, but Eve taken from Adam, from his rib, as he's put into a deep sleep. And she, some would argue, is the real pinnacle of creation, right? Or God's, like, total masterpiece. Um... Well, you see that this perfection or the things that God calls good, this harmony and this relationship with the creator, this wisdom that's being lived out day to day does not last very long, right? We're not actually told how long it lasts, but it doesn't last very long. It's two chapters in the Bible. Chapter three, everything, right? Um, Things start going wrong. They fall into foolishness which is living in a way they were not designed to do, which is in rebellion or disobedience to God. They're designed to live with God as the king, but they slip into the disobedience of saying, I am my own king. I will be my own authority. I will eat whatever the heck I want to eat. And because of their disobedience and their rebellion and their foolishness of not living according to their design, stuff breaks, relationships break, the earth breaks, now thorns and thistles are going to come out of the ground, right? Now childbearing is going to be terrible for Eve, and the relationship between Adam and Eve is broken, disconnected, disharmony. And you'll notice how this works itself out practically as they start blaming each other, right? Uh, God comes and asks Adam, like, hey, Adam, what'd you do? And in one sentence, he blames the only two beings that he knows. It was the woman that you gave me. <laughs> right. Not very good, Adam. So this, the relationship of everything disintegrates, or we could say decreates, into something that is broken and imbalanced and foolish and life-taking rather than life-giving, and blame-shifting rather than responsibility-owning. Well, you see, because of this part of our history, this everything kind of falling apart, we are all given over to, bless you, we're all given over to sin. And we are all given over to things like partiality. right? And we are all given over to Tilting the scales of judgment in our own favor. So that in all of our own minds, we are less at fault in our minds than we are in reality. Does that make sense? We begin to become like these little lawyers and litigators who, who don't see reality for what it really is, but see it as it is in terms of it being favorable to us. 
And we see people in terms of their usefulness to us and how we can manipulate them and get usefulness out of them. And we can call this partiality. We can call this hypocrisy. But what we have to understand is that altogether it is sin and it plagues the entire human race and that nobody is immune to this sin of partiality or nobody is removed from hypocrisy. So here's what James has to say in chapter 2, okay? We'll just start with verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring were to enter into your assembly, uh, or sorry, a gold ring with fine clothing comes into your assembly, uh, that means like, say you're going to church and a guy dressed really nice, he comes in to your church or your community. If say, guy comes in and he's got a nice gold ring and a nice suit and tie, right? And he's got a slick haircut and you're like, this guy is a spiffy guy, right? And at the same time, another man comes in. But as James says, he's a poor man and has shabby clothes. If those two men walk into your church at the same time and you treat them different, you're being partial. You're showing favoritism. You're tilting the scales out of balance, perhaps in your own favor, perhaps in their favor. But somewhere along the way, you've misunderstood things in your mind in such a way that somebody else is on the throne other than the Creator God. Um, so it says this. If both of those men come in, verse 3, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, Oh, hey, come on, you sit here in the good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Just don't be seen. Or rather, why don't you just sit on the ground? Sit down here by my feet. And you have, have you then not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with, as James puts it, with evil thoughts? He says that it is actually evil for you to look at these two men when they come in and judge them based on their appearance, judge the value and worth that they possess as a human being based on the clothing that they wear. And if you show partiality and give the man with nice clothes a good seat, and if you tell the man with shabby clothes because he's not looking good for your reputation, or he's not bringing any value or like tithing a bunch to the church, right? He's not actually offering anything, it would seem, and he's kind of shabby looking. If you say, okay, you go stand in the back, and this guy up here who has nice clothes and like brushed his teeth this morning and can tie the whole bunch, he's going to get the preferred seat. If you give preference to the rich man over the poor man, you've sinned. And James actually calls that evil. And I know that we can all look in our own lives and see how we have given preference or favoritism to particular people. I know we've all done it. I know I've done it. And I'm like convicted when I read something like this from James. And I was like, man, I didn't know that was such a big deal. Because that's the kind of stuff that in my mind, I can let slide when I do it. Like I maybe know that it's not good to show preference or favoritism. But I, in my mind, I'm not thinking it's like James says, like, hey, this is straight up evil. I'm not thinking along those lines. I kind of like brush it off in my mind like, oh, I'm not sinning in this. This isn't that big of a deal. This isn't a problem. I mean, like, maybe I should be more like welcoming to everybody, but do I, in my mind, call that a sin? Do I, ha do I go later and feel the need and conviction to repent for that? You know, I just feel like, it's a lesser deal than some of the other big ones, you know? The big sins. Well, I'm not murdering anybody. 
right? I'm not slandering anybody. I'm not disobeying my parents, you know? I'm not doing any of this. But he calls that favoritism, that partiality, he calls it evil. Straight up sin. Not messing around here. Got it? Well, why is it a problem? And why is it a sin? Because as we show partiality or favoritism, or we give preference to somebody over the other, we're tilting the scales of justice. And we're judging incorrectly. And we're not judging as God judges, looking at the heart, but we're being like man and judging by outward appearance. And we're making decisions based on that. We're making value judgments based on that. We're making uh, moral judgments based on just the way that they dress, right? If you see someone dressed nice, do you ever think in your head, oh, they're less of a sinner? Like maybe you don't think it out loud in your head, but you're like, oh, they're a better person. Versus the person who's like, maybe didn't cut their fingernails. I actually didn't cut my fingernails, but don't worry about that. Maybe the person like didn't brush their teeth. Maybe their hair's all shabby and stuff. Do you ever look at that person and think, oh, they have more problems going on in their life. They're, they're not quite pulled together. Right? You ever think like that? No? Yes. I do. Sorry. Oops. Forgive me, Lord. Um, that's why I pointed out because I've totally felt like that before. And James is saying, that's a sin. That's something you need to go and repent of. That's something that you need to work through in the terms of how the scales work in your mind. You see, we, we do it on a small scale, but this has been out of control for ages in, the, in human history. Partiality. Preferential treatment. Usually it's people thinking that they are better or superior than others, and that is how other people, races, genders, stuff, get hurt. Like, for instance, when this partiality thing gets kind of out of control, and people start letting it go rampant, and deep down they somehow believe that people like me are the best kind of people. We all, we all think that. That's why we form cliques. Because people like me are the good ones, and people unlike me are the bad ones. So we form cliques. And you know why people form cliques? Usually it's no bigger reason than fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of other people's value threatening our value, fear that their opinions will muddle up our opinions, fear that their ideologies, their values, their customs, their language, their, whatever it is, are going to mess up what we got going on. So out of the fear of that, we'll form cliques. And this is, I mean, this has been rampant in the world in history. Look at things like slavery, right? The lesser race gets turned into slaves that serve the superior race. Think about the Holocaust and Adolf Hitler. He literally thought that white people or Aryans, blonde, blue-eyed people, were superior to everybody else in the world. And that Jews were what was wrong with the world. And if we just extinguish, exterminate the Jews, we'll have a much better world and nothing will be wrong. Well, doesn't that go back to the case of Adam and Eve blaming each other? Cain killing Abel because his sacrifice was better? Oh, you are what's wrong with... You're the reason that my sacrifice wasn't good because yours was better. So I'm going to kill... This is rampant in humanity. Inside the church, outside the church, different religions, Christianity. It's a human problem because sin is a human problem. 
It's what led our country for so long to treat black people as lesser human beings than white people. Because we believed, sadly, that white people are far superior. And that black people, just simply because of the color of their skin, are lesser human beings. And at one point they were slaves. And then we thought when we stopped making them slaves, even though we had segregation and stuff, that we were, were doing really good because they're not slaves anymore. Well, they couldn't vote. They couldn't go to the same drinking fountains, bathrooms, sit in the same areas and restaurants, go to the same schools. This is partiality, favoritism at its worst. And it hurts people. Right? And we, we brush it over in our lives like, oh, it's, it's really not that. It's not one of the chief sins, you know. It's not one of the bad ones. But James is saying, hey, don't you know, this is, this is just evil. This is hurting people. And do you know that in our society and even creeping into our churches today, that we have problems of partiality, that we think like, like white Americans in the past who ended, who stopped treating black people as slaves but still treated them as lesser humans, we thought we were taking a step forward. And that is a step forward, but there's still farther to go. Right? So we still have stuff in our society and culture in, in the church today that is still partiality, still evil, and still a problem today. And maybe we've come a ways, but we still have farther to go. Do you know that there's still racism? That we still treat certain races as lesser. And we don't feel it as much because we're mostly white. And... The <laughs> Because of that, we, we don't know what life in other people's shoes feels like. <laughs> oh, nothing. Much love. Uh, so, but we still have a ways to go. There's still racism. What about this one? This one's big. Ageism. Young people thinking that old people are just out of touch, whacked out, don't know what's up, can't tell me what to do. Your style is old. Your, you, the way you speak is old. You don't use an iPhone. Right? You're just old. My gosh. And then we, may, we devalue them and make them feel like lesser human beings because of the way they talk, dress, and the technology that they use. Is that partiality? Is that fair? Or it works the other way too. Old people saying young people are just young bucks and they're wet behind the ears and they're, you don't understand life and you don't have wisdom and you can't do the things that I do and, and they're, they're holding on to their glory. And they, they sometimes can't give it up enough to let go of their position to pour into and build up the younger people and leave a legacy that will, that will make a lasting impact. And you ask the question, well, who's seeking the glory? Whose glory are they seeking? What about classism? If you drive some certain kind of car, you're better... If you wear some certain kind of brands or clothes, you're better. If you don't have real Toms, if you've got Bobs, I'm sorry. You're a lesser human being. We won't say it with our mouth, but we'll say it. We'll say it with the way that we live. Right? <laughs> But we totally do that. If you're not wearing Levi's, 
if you're wearing Lee's, ooh, right? Recalculate and try again. Um, we're super classist. And even within the same class, we'll be classist. And we'll segregate and differentiate according to our styles and our customs and our clothes and our vernacular and the way that we think about things, right? We walk around high school, and what do you see? Just bunches of different groups. You see groups, and they're all at odds with each other, and they're all judging each other partially, very partially, based on appearance and clothes and shallow things and not the actual worth of that human heart. Well, what James is encouraging us to do here what he's telling us, what he's saying is the wisdom, is, hey, the way that you live wisely is you live according to the way that you were designed. And the way that you were designed is to live according to what he calls the royal law. So let's read for a minute, and then we'll, uh, we'll see what he says. So if you're saying all this stuff, to these two kinds of men, poor and rich. You're judging with evil thoughts. And he goes, listen, verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who, par who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you with their richness? Are not... Um, and the ones who drag you into court to nickel and dime you for your money? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? What's the honorable name by which you were called? The name of Jesus. And James is saying, aren't these rich people the ones who are mocking the name of Jesus, but you prefer them? Doesn't that just sound backwards? preferring the powerful people who mock the name of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that all rich and powerful people mock the name of Jesus, but it's easier to when you don't feel the weight of your neediness. See, poor people live, they, they, poor people are rich in faith because they must live by faith. They must depend on God for everything, including what I'm going to eat today. Poor people don't feel the weight of that need. That's why Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle because they don't feel the weight of the burdens of life. Yet blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? See, if we live this way that James is telling us, he says this in verse 9 or 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, I like how he says that, the royal law, the regal law, the kingly law. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, it's this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Remember they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he goes, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they're like, oh yeah? Everybody believes that. What's the second most important, right? And they're always like trying to catch him. And he's like, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, the Bible assumes that you love yourself. You don't have to teach a man to love himself. You have to teach a man to love his neighbor. you have to teach a two or a three-year-old how to say mine and how to take the Legos from the other kids? No, I remember being three years old in preschool. It was Christian preschool, but these are the most selfish kids I've ever known. One time I had my meatballs stolen by one of the kids. Anyway, after nap time, it would be like playtime every day, and I never slept during nap time. I just thought that I was like missing out on something, some, something great. 
and I never slept, except for one time when I got in trouble and got sent to another room, and then I slept over there. That was the one time I slept in preschool. Anyway, nap time would be over, and then we'd have to, like, slowly, patiently, like, put our mats away and put our shoes back on, but we were all waiting for the moment. That moment when they say, Playtime! And then when they said playtime, I swear to you, 20 kids ran over to the Lego bin and they all wanted this one Lego. I don't remember what was so cool about this one Lego, but probably the fact that there was only one of them. And that's what people loved about it. If you have that one, you're the guy, you're the man, you're the girl, whatever it is. You've got the one Lego. And if you've got one Lego, what are you going to do with one Lego? Nothing. You can't do anything with one Lego, right? But people felt so powerful. Three-year-olds, so powerful when they had the one Lego because nobody else had the Lego. Do you get it? Partiality in three-year-olds, you don't have to teach it to them. They know it when they're born. It's a human thing. But James says this, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, the royal law that's listed out in this book, if you live this out, what it's going to look like in your life is you love your neighbor as yourself. It means you're not looking for the Lego. You're looking to give the Lego to someone else. And he says, if you're doing this, you're doing well. But, verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty, for judgment with, is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And then this, my favorite part, mercy triumphs over judgment. This is what he says. If you want to live this royal law, we could call it the law of love. If you're fulfilling the royal law, it's loving your neighbor as yourself. So if you're living this law of love, that's mean, that means sometimes you're disadvantaging yourself so that your neighbor can be advantaged. So that they can get ahead. So that they can gain while you lose. And isn't this the way of the cross? Isn't this what Jesus demonstrated in going to Calvary for us? I'll lose so they can win. And if I lose now, I know by faith that someday I'll be with them for eternity. So by losing, I'm actually winning. In the kingdom of God, when you lose, you really win. And when you think you win, you actually lose. So he says this. Don't think like this isn't a big deal or something, like showing partiality. Don't sit there and think like, hey, I'm not a murderer. Because me, I've never murdered so much as a chipmunk. Right? And I'm pretty proud of that. <laughs> well, I probably murdered some, lots of bugs and whatnot and fish. I've, I've definitely murdered fish. And it was not like, you know, in the name of Jesus or anything. It was a brutal murder. Anyway, that, that's another story. Um, he's saying, don't sit there all proud of yourself because you're not a murderer or an adulterer. Because if you've broken, in, if you've broken the law in one part, you've broke the whole thing. So even if you've never murdered or committed adultery and you've been partial, you're just as guilty as the murderer and the adulterer. 
This is why you don't show partiality. Because murderers and adulterers are not lesser human beings. We are all... Isn't this awesome? According to the Bible, we are all the scum of the earth. Anybody feeling really good right now? But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus takes scum and turns it into a bouquet of flowers. And so many of us are arguing about who's scummier. Jesus is like, you're all, you're all scum. Nobody measures up to me my righteousness, my perfection, and my royal law. Nobody keeps the royal law. We all talk about it, and we judge, we judge people according to it. And usually it's not even according to the royal law. It's according to the own, our own versions of the royal law that we keep in our heads. And we hold other people to those standards, but we do not hold ourselves to those standards. We do it all the time. If you ask the majority of the world that is outside the church, what do you think about Christians? The majority of the world, according to just surveys and documented studies and stuff like this, most of them are saying, yeah, the church is hypocritical and judgmental and they don't live what they're preaching and all this stuff. And you're like, wow. I don't know if we're doing such a good job there, <laughs> right? But here's what Je or sorry, James, Jesus' little brother. Here's what James says. Don't you know that mercy triumphs over judgment? That means stop being a law keeper and being more harsh on other people than you are on yourself. See, because you're judgmental to others and you're merciful to yourself, that's not good. He says, I'd rather you just be merciful because mercy triumphs over judgment. If God returns and he asks you to give an account of your life, and you're like, I held everybody accountable and I judged everybody and I didn't let anybody slip away with anything. You think he's going to be proud of that? Or if you just simply tell him, like, I don't know, I mess up all the time and I didn't judge correctly and I probably made some bad mistakes. But when I was able to, I was merciful. That's the person to whom he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. <clears throat> In this life, we're made to work or to do something. Remember back to that garden? Before things went awry in chapter 3, Adam and Eve had jobs. They were gardeners. And Eve had the job through her womb to fill the earth. What was her job? Well, these people were gardeners and they worked before work was bad. Wouldn't that be cool? They were made to do something. And like Adam and Eve, we are in our own sense gardeners. And God has placed gardens in front of us and says, hey, this is going to be toil because this earth is filled with thorns and thistles, but will you garden with me? And some of us won't be quiet long enough to hear the voice of God calling us to garden with him. But we are made for work. We are made to do good things and to make this earth bountiful and overflowing with fruit and to make this earth flowing with life to make humanity flourish to be fruitful and multiply that's part of the original commission 
We're to be gardeners. And so many of us neglect that calling from God to be gardeners. In fact, some of us get all spiritual about the way that we do it. We go, oh no, it's not works. It's by faith that I am saved. Because did you read Ephesians? Uh-uh. I was reading Paul the other day, and he said, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of your own doing, but that from God. So I'm not saved by my works. And they use it as like an in a excuse to be lazy. I don't have to work. I don't have to do anything. I, I am righteous in Christ. And you can't judge me for being lazy. Well, psh, yeah, I can. You're not, you're being foolish right now when you're being lazy. You're not fulfilling your God-given purpose. It's part of that purpose and part of that wisdom to be a productive part of society, to be a gardener and to be a contributor and to make humanity better and to make humanity flourish because you were here. So James is going to say something that sounds totally contradictory to Paul. James is going to say, you're saved by your works. And you're like, what? <laughs> That's totally the opposite of what Paul says. And James is going to go, no. You are saved by your works. Let's just read what he says because it's good. 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Is that a saving faith if you don't work? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and filled without going to them, the things needed for the body, what without giving to them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself does not have, if faith by itself does not have works, it's dead. And a dead faith can't save you. So if you're not living well, and if you're not living with wisdom, if you're not doing life with good works, James says you won't be saved because, and there's an explanation, I'm not saying go out there and do a bunch of good stuff and think that's going to get you to heaven or that's going to save you. But, verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. How do you know my faith is real? My faith. How do you know my faith is real? What if I just talked about it? What if I just told you about it? I'm like, oh yeah, man, my faith. And I'm just faith, faith. And I was praying the other day, and faith, and faith, and just faith. And then I was having a conversation with someone, and faith. And I was just preaching the other day, and I sat up there all day long, and just 40 minutes of straight up faith. Sounds annoying. Yeah, well, it does sound annoying. It was supposed to. <clears throat> no, James says this. If you have a real faith, I will see your faith in your works, in the way that you live, in the way that you treat people, in the way that you are to the poor and the powerless and the orphan and the widow and the person without food and the person who is cold and the person who is walking in here in your church in shabby clothing and not with a gold ring on his finger. I'm going to know what your faith is like by how you treat those people. You believe that God is one. You do well. Check this out. Don't feel all high and mighty on yourself because you believe in God. <laughs> Here's what James says. Even the demons believe and shudder or they tremble. Even the demons believe in God and they tremble. 
do you want to say that your faith is on par with demons? You're like, oh yeah, I totally believe in God. And the demons are over there like, yeah, I totally believe in God too. I'm afraid of them. I'm shaking in my boots right now. What's the difference between a demon and a believer? Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So then he's going to give these two examples. Right? Abraham sacrificed or was going to sacrifice his son Isaac up on the altar. Right? And the fact that Abraham brought his son and laid him on the altar and was about to sacrifice his son, that is how Abraham was made righteous, by something that he did. And you're like, this sounds totally contradictory to everything I've heard all my life as a Christian. Well, don't, don't you see... Rahab, the prostitute. Oh, you're like, oh, prostitute, she's dirty, right? Prostitutes can't be saved. What? I don't know. Some people think like that, or they act like that. Rahab, the prostitute, is justified when she received the messengers and sent them off another way. She was justified because of what she did. It was counted to her as righteousness because of what she did. We'll see Rahab, the prostitute, the former prostitute, in heaven because of what she did. Why? Because if you have a real faith, then you will have real works. And you can't say that your faith is real if you treat people like poop. Right? If you're partial, and if you judge, and if you're hypocritical, and if you treat some people better than other people, and if you have cliques, and if you do all this stuff, and if you don't love your neighbor, and if like somebody comes up to you in need and you're like, ah, yeah, go be good. You're good. You're, you're good. Then how real is our faith when we knew that? says this, verse 17, faith without works is dead. If you don't work, then your faith might not be a real and saving faith. So here is our wisdom. If we are to live with wisdom, we are going to live according to our design, the way that the Creator intended us to live. And the way He intended us to live, the intent before we messed everything up, the intent was Eden. The intent was gardeners. The intent was perfect relationships with each other and with him. And then we decreated everything by our disobedience. And by Jesus Christ's work, his work, his work, by the things that he did, by his good, loving works, he saved us through the cross and he put his Holy Spirit inside of us to form us into new creations. Creation, decreation, recreation. We're being recreated in Jesus right now into his image and likeness. And no, you and I are not perfect today and right now and we'll never be perfect while on this earth. So the best thing that we can do if we're all not perfect people living together is love one another, is encourage one another, and live by the rule of thumb that mercy triumphs over judgment. And we got to live out that new creation in a community of the king living under the royal law, the law that sets us free. We are to live, if we are to have wisdom, we are to live according to our design. And our design is to be under the king. 
And we are not acting like we are above the law, we are superior, we are what? No, we live under the king. And under his perfect law. And that will give us something that we call a living faith. And would you much rather have a living faith than a dead faith that does not save? So as we go from here this night, and as we go home, as we go to our schools, as we go to our families, we go to whatever it is, don't just talk about your faith. Let it lead you into action. Let your faith live. Make it a living faith, not a dead one. Don't have faith like a demon. That's stupid. Think. Am I just believing in God and trembling? Or am I actually allowing my faith to lead me to live wisely according to my design and to live out good works and to love my neighbor and to care for the poor and the powerless and to do things that actually benefit people in society and my church and my school and my family and my, all this stuff is my faith is your faith is our collective faith is it a living faith let's pray Dear Jesus, I thank you for such a day as this where you would come and you would bless us with your word, that you would, um, God, speak into our hearts, that you would, God, transform us by the renewing of our minds and by the hearing of your word. God, I pray that this message would not just be skin deep, God, but that it would sink in and that it would transform our innermost being. And that we would be compelled by love to live a life that actually does good things for people. That loves our neighbors and that cares for the poor and the powerless. Let us not forget that. In Jesus' name, amen.